Good morning. Please have a seat. Good morning. Please have a seat. Uh, before, uh, before we begin the sermon, I want to uh, welcome some guests we have with us this morning. Uh, Peter Lynn uh, is uh, our friend from the Burmese congregation Kumi Fellowship that uh, meets here on Sunday afternoons. Uh, and he has with him uh, Father Daniel, who is uh, from their uh, home in, in Burma. I want to welcome them to uh, New Hope this morning. Uh, glad to have you, uh, have you guys with us today. Um, so Jen mentioned the, the traveling bit, and, and I know that all of you, when you travel, always make sure you go to church on Sunday morning. Um, and one of the things you notice when you do that is that different churches have different cultures. Different churches have very different cultures. Now some of that has to do with the fact that different cultures have different cultures. There are some cultures that tend to be very huggy, right? I was with some friends uh, when I was in Jerusalem studying. I was with some friends who come from much huggier cultures. I think I got hugged more in the first few hours we were together than I had been outside of my family in the last three months, which is fine as long as you kind of remember that that's what's coming. But yes, different cultures will express greetings in different ways. I was Among the things we discussed when we were over there was the peace process, the various efforts made to find peace between uh, Israelis and Palestinians. And I remembered back in 1993 uh, when the, the Oslo peace, peace process concluded and it was being, uh, the, the agreement made was recognized on the White House lawn. And Yasser Arafat, who was the head of the Palestinian uh, Liberation Organization, uh, now the Palestinian Authority, and uh, Yitzhak Ravine, who was the Prime Minister of Israel, were brought together for a handshake. In fact, you, you actually saw President Clinton kind of had to bring them together because these are two people who would not normally be doing that thing. But what, what I also learned in, in reading about the preparations for that was that, uh, that because Arafat came from a culture where it is customary to greet somebody with kisses, uh, Clinton had to make sure he did not do that to him because the last thing he wanted was pictures of him kissing Yasser Arafat, who did, of course, have Israeli blood on his hands. He had been involved in terrorist activities. So Clinton, if you, if you look, uh, if, if you watch the footage, he actually grabs Arafat by the shoulder with the one hand and shakes his hand with the other, basically to block him out to make sure he couldn't come close and give him a kiss. Now, would have been completely unremarkable in Arafat's culture, but for ours... A man kissing another man, especially if there is any question as to the other person's uh, uh, character, can be a real problem. And Clinton, of course, was hoping to get reelected, which he did. So Paul, here in 1 Corinthians at the end, tells the Corinthians to do something that he also tells them to do at the end of 2 Corinthians. And for all we know, he told them to do that at the end of the actual 1 Corinthians, the letter he refers to in this one, which has been lost. So actually, we're, when we read 1 Corinthians, we're really reading 2 Corinthians. At the end of Romans, he tells the Romans to do this. At the end of 1 Thessalonians, he tells the Thessalonians to do this. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Peter, at the end of his first letter has a similar thing to say. He says, greet one another with a kiss of love. 
In fact, some of the, uh, some of the people copying the manuscripts over the years thought Peter meant to say holy kiss, so they actually went and put holy instead of kiss of love. And, and, then, and then other folks came along and said, well, maybe he meant both, so greet one another with a holy kiss of love. But Paul, yeah, four times says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And so the question is, what on earth is Paul talking about here? It could be the case that when Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss, he is distinguishing that kind of kiss from other sorts of kisses that folks in Corinth might have been involved in. And if you'll remember, as we looked in chapters 5 and 6 and 7, there were some other kinds of kissing people in Corinth were inclined to do that they probably shouldn't have been. You remember the story of the man who was living with his stepmother. Like Whatever kissing was going on in that household was not holy. But it's more likely, I think, that what Paul is referring to here is the kind of greeting that we have just given to one another. Now here at New Hope, we call it the stand break, right? Because in the church we came from, somebody would say, stand up and say hello to somebody near you while the preacher comes to preach. Of course, the church we came from, the preacher had to come from off of a big, long stage. Uh, here, I just walk right up here. It doesn't take that long unless I have to get wired up. But, but the idea there for us was always, well, this is just sort of, you know, some way to sort of say hello and be kind of friendly to somebody and also gives you a chance to stretch your legs for a moment before you have to sit down again for 40 minutes. But what that comes from initially, originally in the liturgy, in the service of worship in the church, is called the peace, where traditionally the priest or whoever's officiating would say, the peace of the Lord be always with you. And the people would respond, and with your spirit. Or they would respond, and also with you. You can tell if somebody is a pre-Vatican II Catholic, if they would say, and with your spirit, you know, but... Generally, you can find an Episcopalian when they go to see the Star Wars movies and someone says, may the force be with you, and they say, and also with you. But this is a time when people are supposed to exchange the peace, exchange the peace of the Lord, the peace of Christ, Pax Christi. So when I was in Jerusalem, I had the privilege of, of attending a, a service held at the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, the, the tomb where traditionally Jesus has been laid. Uh, it was a, a service that was uh, administered by the Franciscans, uh, one of the three uh, orders that has uh, uh, the right to be in, in parts of that holy sanctuary. And uh, at the peace, uh, I turned to the person next to me who I think was a Catholic priest or at least a seminarian, and I didn't know from where. I said Pax Christi, which is the, the Latin for the peace of Christ. And pe I heard people exchanging the peace in all kinds of different languages. Fortunately, he didn't say anything else in Latin because that's about all the Latin I know. But the idea is that this is a time when people will exchange peace, exchange a message of peace, a word of peace. And the point of that is not that it be a simple greeting. The point of that also, I just need to say, is not to be like the appetizer for coffee hour. Right? The, the point of exchanging the peace is not A, to see how many shake, hands you can shake, or B, how deep a conversation you can get into before the preacher tells you to please sit down because he has a sermon to preach. Uh, th the idea is not that, that this is the, the warm-up for when we really kind of relate to one another as human beings. The idea is, originally, that we needed to assure one another that we have the peace of Christ and that we share 
the peace of Christ because, quite honestly, we don't always feel that we have the peace of Christ with one another, and oftentimes it is the case that we are here in church with people with whom our relationships are not entirely whole. Jesus says this is not something that you should allow to continue. If you look in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you know, if you're offering your gift at the altar, that is to say, if you, you know, Jesus is saying this when the temple was standing and God's people would have brought a gift to the altar at the temple in Jerusalem. He says, so if you're, if you're offering your gift at, your alt, at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there. Right? He says, leave it at the front of the altar. You've waited in line, you've got to the end of the line, you're right there, it's like you've been waiting for hours to get on the roller coaster, and then you remember, wait a minute, somebody has something against me. He says, leave it right there, and first go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. I think Paul is echoing this when he says in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, before this, when he says that, that anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body, without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. What's Paul talking about there? Well, that's, that's a part of 1 Corinthians where Paul is talking about the Eucharist. He's talking about communion. And he says, backing up a few verses, that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And a lot of people will read this and they'll say, oh, okay, well, if we have communion, then I need to make sure that I have not sinned in any really major grievous way. Otherwise, I'm eating and drinking judgment on myself. I don't think Paul's saying that at all. In fact, the, the whole point of communion is to recognize that we desperately need to be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us and his body broken for us. We don't have to try to achieve some sort of moral righteousness. That's why some people will, um, they, they won't even eat breakfast on the day they receive communion. Now, it, you can think of that as a discipline so that the first thing you eat is the Eucharist, but then other people don't do that because they're afraid they may fall into gluttony, and then would they be impure? Would they be eating and drinking at the Eucharist in an un, unworthy manner? I don't think Paul's saying that at all. I think when he says that whoever eats and drinks without discerning the body without recognizing the body. He's referring to the body of Christ, i.e. to the church. The problem he's talking about, you'll remember from when we, were, when we were in 1 Corinthians 11, it just seems like yesterday. You'll remember that you had in Corinth people who were wealthy who were turning the Eucharist into a dinner party or worse, into a symposium, into a drinking party. And so when the poorer people in the congregation, quite possibly the slaves of the more wealthy ones, when they got there for the Eucharist, there was nothing left. All that was left was, was crumbs and, and dregs. And Paul says to them, you're not celebrating the Eucharist when you do that. In fact, Paul says, I, I would rather you didn't have church at all than that you do the things you're doing the way you're doing them. 
No, he says you're, you're committing, basically committing violence against the integrity of the body of Christ when, when you disrespect your brother and sister by claiming that you're celebrating the Lord's Supper. He says it's not the Lord's Supper you're celebrating. You're just having a party and trying to put a thin religious veneer over it. God's not fooled, I'm not fooled, and your brothers and sisters in Christ who are being treated poorly aren't fooled either. In fact, Paul says, you guys doing this this way is why many among you are weak and sick. In fact, some of you have died. You know, if we judged ourselves, we wouldn't come under judgment. Paul says, we, you know, easy for us to look at ourselves and say, hey, we're okay. But he says, you know, it's the Lord who judges us. And when we're judged by him, then we're being disciplined so that we won't be condemned with the world. So both Jesus and Paul are saying that when we have unresolved conflict, when there is relational brokenness among God's people within the body, that that's a problem. That's something that needs to be fixed and needs to be fixed right away. It's bad for us. It's bad for the church. Paul says in another letter, in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4, Paul says, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. What's key to note here is he's not just talking, generally speaking, about how we should always be honest and how, how we should keep short, short accounts. He says, the reason for this is that we are all members of one body. We are all members of Christ's body, the church. And so the integrity and the health and the wholeness of God's body, Christ's body, needs to be protected. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German theologian martyred by the Nazis, he said, Christian community means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. There is no Christian community that is more than this, and there's none that is less than this. Whether it be a brief single encounter or the daily community of many years, Christian community is solely this. We belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. The picture on your bulletin is one of the silly nativity scene pictures that I have dozens of. This one, evidently, Jesus will be coming back soon, despite his enemies. Somebody swiped the Jesus out of the nativity set. But if there's no Jesus, then the nativity scene is, is pointless, Right? Likewise, if Jesus is not at the center of our relationships, then our gathering here is some sort of a social engagement, some sort of group of people who get together to maybe learn some stuff, sing some songs, figure out how we can do some good things in the community. But it's not church. He said, Bonhoeffer goes on to say, our community consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. That's not only true at the beginning, as if in the course of time, something else were to be added to our community, but it also remains so for all the future and into all eternity. I have community with others and will continue to have it only through Jesus Christ. The more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more everything else between us will recede. The more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is alive between us. We have one another only through Christ, but through Christ we really do have 
one another. We have one another completely and for all eternity. In, in trying to describe what Bonhoeffer is saying, sometimes I'll use the, the analogy of, of a wheel. You think of a wheel that's got a hub and it's got its spokes. And if you think of each of us as spokes, the place where we naturally think that we have commonality is where the rubber meets the road, right? I mean, we all connect at the outside of, of the wheel, at the rim. And it's where the rubber meets the road that we most naturally engage with one another. We most naturally engage as human beings with one another. But in fact, that's the place where the spokes are farthest apart from each other, isn't it? The other place where they meet is at the hub. And so rather than traveling toward greater mutual human understanding, Bonhoeffer says, the way that we really know one another, the way that we really are in relationship with one another, the only way we really can be in fellowship with one another is in and through Jesus Christ. A more biblical illustration would be like grapes on a vine. You can have two grapes that are bunched up and they're snug up against each other, but really they're just touching skin. The real essence of the grape, what's inside, is only accessed by means of the vine, which Jesus says he is. So for our relationships to genuinely be the kind of relationships God calls us to, that he enables in the body, they have to be relationships that are centered upon Jesus Christ. Any effort to relate to one another by any other means is an effort to get away from what is most central and what is most characteristic of the nature of our relationships with one another in the church. And so if there is unresolved conflict, if there are broken relationships in the body, it's bad for us and it's bad for the church. And also, to raise the stakes some, it's bad for the kingdom. You remember in John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, when he says, I'm not just praying for my disciples, Father, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. Emil Gary is a, a Catholic priest, and his reflection on this noted that Jesus didn't ask merely that his disciples be united. I mean, there are unions that amount to mere juxtapositions, gatherings of individuals with no interior bond. If you stand at the bus stop with a group of people, you, uh, you're kind of part of the group of people standing waiting for the bus. There's really no relationship, no unity there. The master asks that his disciples may be one, that they may constitute a unity, a single whole, a single body, a single family, by way of the communication of one and the same Spirit. And no comparison drawn from merely worldly unions will adequately express his desire. He gazes, therefore, into the depths of the Trinity, into the love of the Father and the Son, and there he finds the model to set before his disciples for their imitation. This is a high calling. Our relationships with one another are to manifest the unity, the integrity, of relationships among the persons of the Godhead. And that's not just because that's how things really are. It's also because that is crucial to the integrity of our witness 
Sadly, at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where you have three groups of monks with different pieces of turf, from time to time, conflicts erupt. In fact, if you really want to, you can go on YouTube and you search on Church of the Holy Sepulchre monks fighting, and you will see monks fighting. Not like cool Shaolin monks from, you know, kung fu movies. This is just monks, Greek Orthodox and Franciscan monks, fighting one another over whether somebody was processing through the right space at the right time. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre has two keys to it. There's one Muslim family that opens the door in the morning. There's a second Muslim family that locks it at night. Jesus' people are so unable to get along with one another that we need to have our Muslim neighbors open and close the church that marks the spot where traditionally Jesus was crucified and then where he was buried. I'm going to go out on a limb and say this is probably not what Jesus had in mind when he prayed that we would be one as he and the Father are one. And our unity is a direct testimony to his incarnation. May they be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our witness to a watching world has a lot to do with how we treat one another, the health of our relationships. And so this stand break, or the peace during the service, is not just a chance to stretch your legs, and it's not a chance to confirm that you're going to the same place for brunch afterwards, and it's not a time to remind somebody that they owe you 20 bucks. It's the time when we ensure that we are affirming the peace of Christ among us and between us. If there is unresolved conflict, if there are broken relationships, that time of passing the peace really is the time when we need to begin to address that. The person you should make a beeline for when it's time to pass the peace is not the person you just want to see. It's the person that you're not reconciled to. Often that's easy because that person is often the one you drove to church with and who's sitting right next to you. And so as we prepare to take communion, I will ask, are there people here that you don't want to kiss? Not kiss like we think of kissing, but there are there people here to whom you would not want to give a holy kiss? People with whom you don't feel like you are in a restored relationship. One way you can deal with that is simply to kiss them anyway. To say, I choose to be in relationship with you. I choose to rest upon the peace of Christ and trust that the Spirit can work out within us and between us what needs to be worked out. But you may not be at a place where you can do that. It may be that what you need to do is simply resolve this morning. Say, I am going to, I recognize that this is a broken relationship. 
that that's bad for me, it's bad for the church, and it's bad for the church's witness to Jesus. And I'm going to be praying and asking people I care about and trust how I can go about resolving this. Maybe that you have already decided that and now you need the courage and the wisdom to figure out how to do it. And you need to do work. Maybe you need to write a letter. Maybe you need to write a check. Maybe you need to simply say, I see that things are not right between us. Please tell me how it is that I've hurt you. But the practice of the Eucharist is always one that places front and center this reminder to discern the body. Bonhoeffer in his seminary, which is where he wrote this book, Life Together, celebrated the Eucharist once a month. They made a big deal of it. They made a big deal preparing for it beforehand. And he said, the day of the Lord's Supper is a joyous occasion for the Christian community. Reconciled in their hearts with God and one another, the community of faith receives the gift of Jesus Christ's body and blood, therein receiving forgiveness, new life, and salvation. New community with God and one another is given to it. The community of the Holy Lord's Supper is above all the fulfillment of Christian community. Just as the members of the community of faith are united in body and blood at the table of the Lord, so they will be together in eternity. 